Section six of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant, translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. First part, Elements of Pure Practical Reason, Book One, The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason, Chapter One, Of the Principles of Pure Practical Reason, Of the Right that Pure Reason in its Practical Use has to an Extension which is not possible to it in its speculative use. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We have in the moral principle set forth a law of causality, the determining principle of which is set above all the conditions of the sensible world. We have it conceived how the will, as belonging to the intelligible world, is determinable, and therefore we therefore have its subject man not merely conceived as belonging to a world of pure understanding and in this respect unknown which the critique of speculative reason enabled us to do but also defined as regards his causality by means of a law which cannot be reduced to any physical law of the sensible world and therefore our knowledge is extended beyond the limits of that world a pretension which the critique of pure reason declared to be futile in all speculation. Now, how is the practical use of pure reason here to be reconciled with the theoretical, as to the determination of the limits of its faculty? David Hume, of whom we may say that he commenced the assault on the claims of pure reason, which made a thorough investigation of it necessary, argued thus, the notion of a cause is a notion that involves the necessity of the connection of the existence of different things, and that, in so far as they are different, so that, given A, I know that something quite distinct therefrom, namely, B, must necessarily also exist. Now, necessity can be attributed to a connection only in so far as it is known a priori, for experience would only enable us to know of such a connection that it exists not that it necessarily exists. Now, it is impossible, says he, to know a priori and as necessary the connection between one thing and another, or between one attribute and another quite distinct, when they have not been given in experience. Therefore, the notion of a cause is fictitious and delusive, and to speak in the mildest way is an illusion, only excusable inasmuch as the custom a subjective necessity of perceiving certain things, or their attributes, as often associated in existence along with or in succession to one another, is insensibly taken for an objective necessity of supposing such a connection in the objects themselves, and thus the notion of a cause has been acquired surreptitiously and not legitimately. Nay, it can never be so acquired or authenticated, since it demands a connection in itself vain, chimerical, and untenable in presence of reason, and of which no object can ever correspond. In this way was empiricism first introduced as the sole source of principles, as far as all knowledge of the existence of things is concerned, mathematics, therefore, remaining accepted, and with empiricism the most thorough scepticism, even with regard to the whole science of nature as philosophy. For, on such principles, we can never conclude from given attributes of things as existing to a consequence. For this would require the notion of cause, which involves the necessity of such a connection. We can only, guided by imagination, expect similar cases, an explanation which is never certain, however of ten it has been fulfilled. Of no event could we say, a certain thing must have preceded it, 
on which it necessarily followed. That is, it must have a cause, and therefore, however frequent the cases we have known in which there was such an antecedent, so that a rule could be derived from them, yet we never could suppose it as always and necessarily so happening. We should, therefore, be obliged to leave its share to blind chance, with which all use of reason comes to an end, and this firmly establishes scepticism in reference to arguments ascending from effects to causes, and makes it impregnable. Mathematics escaped well so far, because Hume thought that its propositions were analytical, that is, proceeded from one property to another, by virtue of identity, and consequently, according to the principle of contradiction. This, however, is not the case, since on the contrary they are synthetical, and although geometry, for example, has not to do with the existence of things, but only with their a priori properties and a possible intuition, yet it proceeds just as in the case of the causal notion, from one property A to another wholly distinct B, as necessarily connected with the former. Nevertheless, mathematical science, so highly vaunted for its apodeictic certainty, must at last fall under this empiricism for the same reason for which Hume put custom in the place of objective necessity in the notion of cause, and in spite of all its pride, must consent to lower its bold pretension of claiming assent a priori, and depend for assent to the universality of its propositions on the kindness of observers, who, when called as witnesses, would surely not hesitate to admit that what the geometer propounds as a theorem they have always perceived to be fact, and consequently, although it be not necessarily true, yet they would permit us to expect it to be true in the future. In this manner Hume's empiricism leads inevitably to scepticism, even with regard to mathematics, and consequently in every scientific theoretical use of reason, where this belongs either to philosophy or mathematics. Whether, with such a terrible overthrow of the chief branches of knowledge, common reason will escape better, and will not rather become irrevocably involved in this destruction of all knowledge, so that from the same principles a universal scepticism should follow, affecting indeed only the learned, this I will leave every one to judge for himself. As regards my own labours in the critical examination of pure reason, which were occasioned by Hume's sceptical teaching, but went much further, and embraced the whole field of pure theoretical reason in its synthetic use, and consequently the field of what is called metaphysics in general, I proceeded in the following manner with respect to the doubts raised by the Scottish philosopher touching the notion of causality. If Hume took the objects of experience for things in themselves, as is almost always done, he was quite right in declaring the notion of cause to be a deception and false illusion, for as to things in themselves, and their attributes as such, it is impossible to see why, because A is given, B, which is different, must necessarily be also given, and therefore he could by no means admit such an a priori knowledge of things in themselves. Still less could this acute writer allow an empirical origin of this concept, since this is directly contradictory to the necessity of connection, which constitutes the essence of the notion of causality. Hence, the notion was prescribed, and in its place was put custom in the observation of the course of perceptions. It resulted, however, from my inquiries, that the objects with which we have to do in experience are by no means things in themselves, but merely phenomena, and that although in the case of things in themselves it is impossible to see how, if A is supposed, it should be contradictory that B, 
which is quite different from A, should not also be supposed, i.e., to see the necessity of the connection between A as cause and B as effect, yet it can be very well conceived that, as phenomena, they may be necessarily connected in one experience in a certain way, e.g., with regard to time relations, so that they could not be separated without contradicting that connection, by means of which this experience is possible, in which they are objects, and in which alone they are cognizable by us. And so it was found to be fact, so that I was able not only to prove the objective reality of the concept of cause in regard to objects of experience, but also to deduce it as an a priori concept, by reason of the necessity of the connection it implied, that is, to show the possibility of its origin from pure understanding, without any empirical sources. And thus, after removing the source of empiricism, I was able also to overthrow the inevitable consequence of this, namely, scepticism, first with regard to physical science, and then with regard to mathematics, in which empiricism has just the same grounds, both being sciences which have reference to objects of possible experience, herewith overthrowing the thorough doubt of whatever theoretic reason professes to discern. But how is it with the application of this category of causality, and all the others, for without them there can be no knowledge of anything existing, to things which are not objects of possible experience, but lie beyond its bounds? For I was able to deduce the objective reality of these concepts only with regard to objects of possible experience. But even this very fact, that I have saved them, only in case I have proved that objects may, by means of them, be thought, not determined, a priori, this it is that gives them a place in the pure understanding, by which they are referred to as objects in general, sensible or not sensible. If anything is still wanting, it is that which is the condition of the application of these categories, especially that of causality, to objects, namely intuition, for where this is not given, the application with a view to theoretic knowledge of the object, as a noumenon, is impossible, and therefore, if any one ventures on it, as in the critique of pure reason, absolutely forbidden. Still, the objective reality of the concept of causality remains, and it can be used even of noumena, but without our being able in the least to define the concept theoretically so as to produce knowledge. For that this concept, even in reference to an object, contains nothing impossible, was shown by this, that, even while applied to objects of sense, its seat was certainly fixed in the pure understanding, and although, when referred to things in themselves, which cannot be objects of experience, it is not capable of being determined so as to represent a definite object, for the purpose of theoretic knowledge, yet for any other purpose, for instance a practical, it might be capable of being determined so as to have such an application." This could not be the case if, as Hume maintained, this concept of causality contained something absolutely impossible to be thought. In order now to discover this condition of the application of the said concept to noumena, we need only recall why we are not content with its application to objects of experience, but desire also to apply it to things in themselves. It will appear, then, that it is not a theoretic but a practical purpose that makes this a necessity. In speculation, even if we were successful in it, we should not really gain anything in the knowledge of nature, or generally with regard to such objects as are given, but we should make a wide step from the sensibility conditioned, in which we have already enough to do to maintain ourselves, and to follow carefully the chain of causes, to the supersensible, 
in order to complete our knowledge of principles and to fix its limits, whereas there always remains an infinite chasm unfilled between those limits and what we know, and we should have hearkened to a vain curiosity rather than a sole desire of knowledge. But beside the relation in which the understanding stands to objects in theoretical knowledge, it has also a relation to the faculty of desire, which is therefore called the will, and the pure will, inasmuch as pure understanding, in this case called reason, is practical through the mere conception of a law. The objective reality of a pure will, or what is the same thing, of a pure practical reason, is given in the moral law a priori, as it were, by a fact, for so we may name a determination of the will which is inevitable, although it does not rest on empirical principles. Now, in the notion of a will, the notion of causality is already contained, and hence the notion of a pure will contains that of a causality accompanied with freedom, that is, one which is not determinable by physical laws, and consequently is not capable of any empirical intuition in proof of its reality, but nevertheless completely justifies its objective reality a priori in the pure practical law, not, indeed, as is easily seen, for the purposes of the theoretical, but of the practical use of reason. Now the notion of a being that has free will is the notion of a causa noumenon, and that this notion involves no contradiction, we are already assured by the fact, that inasmuch as the concept of cause has arisen wholly from pure understanding, and has its objective reality assured by the deduction, as it is moreover in its origin independent of any sensible conditions, it is therefore not restricted to phenomena, unless we wanted to make a definite theoretic use of it, but can be applied equally to things that are objects of pure understanding. But since this application cannot rest on any intuition, for intuition can only be sensible, therefore causa noumenon, as regards the theoretic use of reason, although a possible and thinkable, is yet an empty notion. Now I do not desire by means of this to understand theoretically the nature of a being, in so far as it has a pure will. It is enough for me to have thereby designated it as such, and hence to combine the notion of causality with that of freedom, and what is inseparable from it, the moral law, as a determining principle. Now this right I certainly have by virtue of the pure, not empirical origin of the notion of cause, since I do not consider myself entitled to make any use of it except in reference to the moral law which determines its reality. That is, only a practical use. If with Hume I had denied to the notion of causality all objective reality in its theoretic use, not merely with regards to things in themselves, the supersensible, but also with regard to the objects of the senses, it would have lost all significance, and being a theoretically impossible notion, would have been declared to be quite useless, and, since what is nothing cannot be made any use of, the practical use of a concept theoretically null would have been absurd. But, as it is, the concept of a causality free from empirical conditions, although empty, i.e., without any appropriate intuition, is yet theoretically possible, and refers to an indeterminate object, but in compensation significance is given to it in the moral law, and consequently in a practical sense. I have indeed no intuition which should determine its objective theoretic reality, but not the less it has a real application which is exhibited in concerto in intentions or maxims, that is, it has a practical reality which can be specified, and this is sufficient to justify it even with a view to noumena. 
Now, this objective reality of a pure concept of the understanding in the sphere of the supersensible, once brought in, gives an objective reality also to all the other categories, although only so far as they stand in necessary connection with the determining principle of the will, the moral law, a reality only of practical application, which has not the least effect in enlarging our theoretical knowledge of these objects, or the discernment of their nature by pure reason. So we shall find also in the sequel that these categories refer only to beings as intelligences, and in them only to the relation of reason to the will, consequently always only to the practical, and beyond this cannot pretend to any knowledge of these beings, and whatever other properties belonging to the theoretical representation of supersensible things may be brought into connection with these categories, this is not to be reckoned as knowledge, but only as a right, in a practical point of view, however it is a necessity, to admit and assume such beings, even in the case where we conceive supersensible beings, e.g. God, according to analogy, that is, a purely rational relation, of which we make a practical use with reference to what is sensible, and thus the application to the supersensible, solely in a practical point of view, does not give pure theoretic reason the least encouragement to run riot into the transcendent. End of section 6